Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. What we're going to do today is play part two of the Calvinism debate. If you missed part one, you can go back on the podcast and get that. Uh, This was a debate that I was involved in um, on the Christus Victor Network. That is a podcast of Owen Pond. He was the one who moderated our debate. Uh, My debate partner was Tyler Vela of the Freed Thinker podcast. We were the ones that were arguing in favor of total depravity, total inability. Our debate opponents were Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 and Braxton Hunter of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. In the last podcast, we played part one, which was really uh, opening statements of defending our view of total depravity. Uh, They were defending their side, and we had cross-examination. This second hour of the debate is more of a question and answer, more cross-examination. And again, it was a cordial interaction between brothers in Christ, and we were, I was thankful to be a part of it. So enjoy listening to part two. Uh, Supposedly, the plan is to do uh, five parts. Uh, to, deal, to deal with all of the five points of Calvinism. And so uh, we'll be getting to those other things in the future, Lord willing. Uh, but for right now, here's part two of the Calvinism debate on total depravity. I think we are ready now to move into the next segment, which is going to be the last segment. It's going to be one hour, and it's going to be open discussion between the two sides to help clarify and continue interacting on the question of man's ability. Leighton, in um, your presentation, you brought up John 6 and you talked about legal hardening. I'm curious, however, though, because in 644, it says that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then again, in 665, it says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. It seems to be talking about more than legal hardening. Um, And um, I had a couple questions about um, – I'll ask a compound question so you can just give one answer. Um, first is um, what is your view on the universal negatives, the the no ones um, in both of these? Do they exclude everyone uh, or do they um, only um, allow believers as the exceptions? Uh, and then also just while you're answering, um, the verse for those who are listening who aren't, um, you know, professors like you three um, and don't know the Greek, it uses the Greek word helko um, for draws them. And it's the same word used uh, to compel or to drag in Acts 16, 19, where Paul and Silas are dragged to the marketplace. And then in James 2, 6, where the rich oppress and drag the poor into court. Can you think of any example where helko is used in the sense of wooing uh, or pleading with someone and, and does not refer to compel or dragging someone? Yeah, good, good question. Um, you know, I, I really think it all goes back to understanding the historical context. In other words, what's happening during the setting of this text? Before you go textual, where grammatical, where you're going there, you have to go big picture, which is the setting. What, what, where's the context? What's happening at this time? And that's what I was trying to speak to: is the fact that 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 God, in His plan and His purpose to bring redemption through Israel is doing that through both the hardening of some Israelites and the mercying of other Israelites from that same lump of clay, which is what Romans 9 is about. And and that would obviously cause people to object, which is why you have the objector in Romans 3 and in Romans 9. 
And, and, and because some Israelites weren't chosen like Paul was. I mean, he was just as bad as the rest of the Pharisees. He was stoning people, but yet God compelled, in a sense, you could say, draw, drew, drew him to himself. He, he blinded him on the road to Damascus, and it convinced him to, to follow uh, much like he walked on water with the apostles, showed them signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders in Scripture are spoken of as as being um, not only, um, you know, proofs of his, you know, identity as a Christ, but um, but also to compel them to believe, it says over and over again. You know, don't, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the, 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 the signs and the wonders. And so there's the sense in which these signs and wonders, these things that he's revealing, these teachings are compelling and, and drawing people to himself. But as, as noted before, he's not entrusting himself to everyone. He's not, he's not um, trying to get everyone on his team, so to speak, yet, um, because to do so would be to ultimately thwart his plan of redemption. He has to entrust himself to a select few so as to, in, in, you know, disciple them, to, you know, teach them. They, they don't even understand. Even the 12 don't understand uh, the redemption on Calvary, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and salvation through by grace through faith through Him, they don't even get that, um, and so that that's slowly being unpacked and shown to them, even as the Gospels roll on. And in John chapter six, you you've got the the, the audience is Israel and the the disciples, the twelve, and both of those are referenced. And Israel is being spoken to in really parabolic language, where he. He knows they're hungry, and so he says, "Okay, well, take a bite out of my arm." <laughs> I mean, ultimately, what he says: "Eat my flesh and drink my blood." And they grumble, why? Because he he sounds like he's talking about cannibalism, and he doesn't say, "Whoa, whoa, guys, you're misunderstanding. That's not what I mean. I don't mean eat my flesh literally. This is what I'm talking about." He doesn't even give them the parable. He doesn't tell them what he's meaning, and he just he he seems to be almost provoking them with this parabolic language, because as Mark 4 says, he only speaks to those on the outside in parables, so so as to prevent them from returning so as to be healed. And so th that's the context of what's happening. And we do see um, Jesus compelling, in a sense, or drawing people to himself while, he, while on earth in order to establish his church. And only when he's raised up does he commission those same 12 um, to go and to preach the gospel to all creatures. And it's through those means that he draws men to himself, according to John 12, 32, Acts 1, 8, um, the Great Commission, and, and all that we see through the text. And so I, I don't know if that answers your question completely. Um, you were talking about uh, the universal of you, no one. Well, yeah, I, I do affirm the universals there. Um, for example, no one can believe in someone they've never heard of, just as Romans 10, 14 says. And so that, that's why the gospel has to be sent. How, how will they believe in one whom they've not heard? And so, yes, that universal, no one is universal. But the context of what he's actually talking about is that he's, he's brought the, the message first to the Jew. And it's not even until Peter has his, that dream with the white sheet coming down and, and Paul is called to the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't even being included yet into all of this. And so no one literally means no one because the gospel has to first go to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so I would, I would affirm the universalities of those. And as far as Helco is concerned, you know, again, with my interpretation, it's not much of a problem because he's doing some pretty good convincing with walking on water and healing the blind. And, and Thomas, he shows up and shows him the nail scarred hands, even though he doubts um, he's doing some, some pretty big um, compelling kinds of things in order to 
get his otherwise self-righteous, you know, Jewish type people on board in order to commission them to go and, and carry the gospel. So, so just to, just to clarify, I, just to make sure, you know, I'm understanding you, uh, this correctly. Um, and then, um, Sean can, I think ask, ask a follow-up question on this. Um, it, it's your view then that, that this, no one refers to no one, um, but that the drawing refers to, um, either Jesus's teaching or his acts in history, um, like walking on water, where where the drawing is um, the presentation of the good news or Jesus' life or Jesus' ministry, some yeah. some type of revelation about Jesus. Right, revelation in general. Right, and and right. you can't you can't believe in one you don't know of. You, there has to be light in order to believe the light. And so, yeah, you you can't you can't come unless you're you're drawn. You're 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 shown the truth. And 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 as and as is, is already noted, the Israelites already thought they knew the truth. And so that makes it even harder. It's it's like even John Piper and others say, sometimes it's hard to get somebody lost and it is to get them found. You know, when you walk into a group of people and they are they are already, um, I'm, I'm getting a, a feedback all of a sudden. I don't know if, so anyway, um, yeah. And, and Sean, you can go now, but that's pretty much my answer to that question is that, you know, they're, they're waiting on the gospel to come in order to be able to believe that gospel message. Okay, like my I guess my question is if 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 there has to be a drawing, does the drawing can the drawing be resisted? Yes. The drawing can be resisted. Yes. Okay. So can we go to a text? Can we go to John six and just ask the question? If the drawing can be resisted, then how can everyone who's drawn be drawn? Actually, let's do this. Let's go back to. Um, Verse 37 of John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how do you reconcile John 6.37 with John 6.44? So the, the question is about those being raised up. Um, there's two different ways that, that people have responded to this. One, you could talk about how, uh, of course, he's going to raise up his apostles because there's the there's the question of if he's speaking of those who are being drawn right now while he's down from heaven, as the text talks about down from heaven contextually, and he's and he's actually in a in a, a way referring to the twelve who are there who who are the only ones who stick around. He even looks at them and says, "Are you guys leaving too?" And they said, "Who are where are we going to go? Um, you're the ones with the truth." And so the twelve stay there. Um, so he he could be referring to the fact that he's going to raise them up, and and that may be their concern is that you know when when are we going to conquer Rome here? When are we going to raise up? When are we going to be sitting on the throne? And he's 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 addressing that contextually. The the other argument, and and maybe a stronger one with regard to your your question specifically, is is whenever they talk about being raised up, he's 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 talking about almost like almost like the word recruited. If 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 it's the assumption of it succeeding. So you might say um, a, a recruiter of the army might say, everyone I recruited today is going to be trained. Everybody I recruited this last year is going to be trained in, in the in the armed forces through boot camp. Well, he's making a statement assuming the recruitment of those who actually were recruited. It does. It's not a statement saying that everyone I attempted to recruit, um, I, I effectually recruited. It's saying that all who are successfully recruited, I will train. And so there's the intention behind the, the statement 
of, of saying what was what was the result of those who are drawn, of those who come to the drawing. The assumption there are those who come will be raised up. Okay, let me just ask a question because you said that you believe the drawing can be resisted. But in John 637, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so if somebody's coming to Jesus and they're given to Jesus and he's never going to cast them out, then and he's going to draw them. How do those all fit together? It seems like there's a there's a link in the chain that's not coming together, which which brings us to another question. And that is, and I think the real issue that's the difference between our two views is, and we keep going back to this, but I think it would be good to have a discussion on this, is is that we would believe that it's the word and spirit, that the word of God has to go forth in power and it has to be accompanied by the Holy Spirit bringing regeneration, whereas you guys would say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe we can go on this discussion, that you guys believe that the word itself, the gospel itself, without a special, and you guys I think are using the terminology special regeneration, is sufficient enough to enable a person to have faith. Would I be correct in, in, in giving you guys that that definition? I, I don't want to speak for Leighton here, but I, I don't see them as necessarily different. I think that the Spirit convicts when the um, when Scripture is read or heard. First Thessalonians one five for our God did not come our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, some people often ask me, "Do you believe in prevenient grace?" As Arminians do, and my answer is, "Well, no, not really." But I do believe that the conviction of the Spirit happens w- whenever people. Uh, hear the word of God. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily see them as completely divorced from each other. Um, I just think that you can res- you can make a, a free choice once you read scripture and experience that convicting power. Okay. Well, can I open a can of worms with you guys? Just so these, that's um, what these, to, that's what these discussions are for. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys in the past, and not me, I, I've never accused you guys of this, but I know in the past, because of your associations and, and who we are, um, as far as our denomination is concerned, I don't want to necessarily bring that into it. But how do you guys um, fight the charge that you are semi-Pelagian in your viewpoint? Because you're not Arminian and believing in provenient grace. You're not Calvinistic and believing, believing in sovereign regeneration. Your view is somewhat kind of in the middle, but the only other choice is left is to say, oh, you must be semi-Pelagian. How do you, how do you guys answer? Well, Leighton, do you want to take that first, then I'll give my answer? Yeah, um, I just wrote an article on Sociology 101 called the Pelagianism, the Calvinist Boogeyman. And and I'm not trying to be mean in saying that. I think boogeyman is a is a fallacy, and it, it's it's the, the the fallacy of of kind of trying to relate somebody's perspective to a known bad character. So, for example, if I were to say, you know, oh, that guy said something that sounded just like what Hitler said once. So you you are trying to I'm trying to pit him along with that bad character, and thus if I if I can associate the two. It's kind of a guilt by association. It's kind of like if I were to say something like, well, Sean said something just like what a hyper-Calvinist said once, and thus he must be a hyper-Calvinist. And obviously that's not true either. And so when you go back to, to history and you really read what is accused of Pelagianism, in other words, what Pelagius actually taught, we're not really sure. Most of his stuff was burned up 
as was the you know custom in those days when something was declared heretical, they just burned it up. And so what we have is the accusations of his opponents, and we don't really have much of his own writing. So it's really difficult to know what he specifically taught. And the the term semi-Pelagianism, once it was kind of eventually come to the point where, you know, all these accusations thrown back and forth and somebody said, no, I'm not a Pelagian. And here's the reason. Well, OK, then you're a semi-Pelagian. OK, so you're you're partially her- heretical. And that didn't get introduced, if my source is correct, until the 16th century when Molinism came popular. And, and it was just it's just again, it's another way if I can somehow get that person's name associated with that person's doctrine, then I can dismiss that person altogether. And I know, Sean's not that's not your heart, but that's what's happening in today's world in, in, on all these issues in my in, in, in my estimation is that people are associating what we're saying with a known bad character or known heresy, but they're not taking the actual teachings of that quote unquote heretic and comparing them with what we're actually talking about in our modern day Western structure. Because I, I think there are positions, for example, Sean Holtz, um, his concept of judicial hardening, what I just heard from a recent um, um, b- broadcast of yours, Sean, would very much fall in line with what I would call equal ultimacy. We can have that discussion about that as well. But um, I, I would warn you that that could go too far and, and, and be in a ditch on your side as well, just as you might say, well, Leighton, you, you sound like you're going too far on your ditch. And I, I don't uh, and that's fine to say that. But both of us have to be willing to objectively evaluate the actual biblical arguments, regardless of historical labels that have been slapped on people over the generations and and, and oftentimes slapped on them and then ignored um, under that guise of saying, oh, I don't have to address that person because now I've labeled him as a heretic or as holding to at least a partial heresy. And so now he's he's not valid at all versus actually taking the, the points point by point and, and through the scripture, which is our only authority. Lane, I think um, I I can clarify Sean's question for you because I I don't think he's trying to say um, uh, how are you different from this really horrible bad terrible thing. Uh, I think we would say you know theologically we understand the theology that we call semi-Pelagian. I mean we could call it theology X. We don't have to tie the person's name to it. Um, the the theology that says um, look we're we're not enable, we're not spiritually unable to affect our own salvation. Uh, God acts and we act in partnership to believe whatever you would like to call that theology. Um, how is your, or how, or is your position actually different than that theology? So I don't think he's trying to make the, um, the historical connection to the personage of Pelagius. So um, maybe, maybe I'll give um, Braxton a, a chance to answer that. And then I, and then I have a follow-up question. I kind of want to go back to John six forty four. Yeah, sure. I, <clears throat> I would, first of all, just echo what Leighton just said. Um, I usually start these discussions by saying, Hey guys, can we just go ahead and grant that I am a semi-Pelagian heretic or something, even though, <laughs> even though I don't think that I am. Um, and, and also I should say, no one's ever accused me of being semi-Augustinian, although I, that might be true. Um, but I, um, I, I just think that we should take the, the theological affirmations and deal with them rather than really concerning ourselves with the label. Although I don't think Sean is doing that. I think there's truth in what Tyler just said. I, Sean, I think you're just wanting to get clarity on the position. Is that, is that right? I, I cause I think, um, um, yes. <laughs> the, what I would say is 
you know, Pelagius, Augustine on the one hand was saying we are born with a sinful nature and a guilt nature. And uh, Pelagius says we're born with neither. The question of um, whether or not we have the freedom to make a genuine choice when confronted with the convicting uh, gospel. Let, let me jump into um, Matt Slick defines semi-Pelagianism um, on his website. And I want to read this definition, Sean, and you tell me if, if you would agree with Matt Slick's you know, definition. So semi-Pelagianism did not uh, deny original sin and its effects upon the human soul and will. But it taught that God and man cooperate to achieve man's salvation, and this cooperation is not by human effort, as in keeping the law, but rather in the ability of the person to make a free will choice. The semi-Pelagian teaches that man can make the first move toward God by seeking God out of his own free will, and that man can cooperate with God's grace even to the keeping of his faith through human effort. This would mean that God responds to the initial effort of the person and that God's grace is not absolutely necessary to maintain faith. And so I just wondered what your feedback, do you feel that that's probably a pretty good, accurate assessment of what semi-Pelagianism is? Yes, I, I think basically the way, and we may all have different understandings of semi-Pelagianism, but basically if you look at the historical view that we are dead in sin and we are totally unable, Arminians and Calvinists agree upon that. What the difference is, is Arminians have provenient grace to overcome deadness. We have sovereign regeneration to overcome deadness. Um, Semi-Pelagianism seems to not take into account total inability, um, but it basically takes into the idea that you can, once presented with the gospel, you have um, some choice or ability to choose with the assisting grace of the Holy Spirit, but it basically denies deadness or inability. And so that's the way I understand semi-Pelagianism. Right. I don't know if somebody else wants to. Yeah, well, and, and Braxton and I, I think agree on this, and I'll let him jump in here to, to answer this. But I don't, I don't really have a lot of issue with prevenient grace. So I've written some articles on why I deny, I, I feel that it's redundant because I prefer the, the word gospel because that's the biblical word. In other words, the gospel, it, prevenient just means coming before, the grace that comes before that's necessary to happen before. Well, the gospel is necessary. And, you know, you need the God. How do they believe in one whom they've not heard? So the gospel is necessary before. Um, it's Holy Spirit inspired. It's from the Holy Spirit. He not only inspired it, but he also carries it. He preserved it for generations. He he still works in circumstances. My brother's over in Turkey, and he talks about people coming to know Christ through dreams right now. The Holy Spirit's actively working all the time to draw people to himself, to reveal himself to others. And so the Holy Spirit's actively working all the time to bring conviction to the world through means like the gospel, through means, you know, various means, circumstances in life. And all of those means, from our perspective, are sufficient to accomplish the very purpose that they're sent, which is, according to John twenty thirty one, so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why these things were written. That's why these things were sent. That's why all of these things that God does, he does it so that you may believe, so that the world may know that he is from God, as, as John chapter 17 says. And so God's desire in all of these things is to preveniently, if you will, grace the world with revelation, the light of the gospel, so that they may believe. And so, it, I, again, I, I just try to define prevenient grace as the scripture actually provides it, per, you know, defines it so as not to confuse people with extra theological baggage, because I just simply don't find anywhere in scripture that spiritual deadness means an inability to respond to God's own appeal to be reconciled from the fallenness that we were, you know, born into. 
I, I think I, I think I want to jump in here. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> so uh, tying tying that, I think I think we're going to get bogged down if we keep going down the the semi Pelagian route. So kind of tying in what you just said, though, going back to John six forty four, it seems like and, and Braxton, maybe you want to respond because or or or, or Leighton to clarify. Um, it, it seems like you almost want 644 to read something like, no one can come to me uh, unless the Father allows the gospel to be presented to them, um, where, where the gospel is the, the drawing force. But in that sense, again, I'm, I'm just going to go back to my question about, about Helco um, and ask if, if, if there's an example where Helco means something other than, than compel or drag. I mean, it's used to talk about drawing water out of, of a well. It's dragging them into the courts. I mean, it's, it's kind of something that is against the will or by, by force. Um, and so at that point, I, I would ask, well, where does the power from the gospel come? Is it, is it the, the, the power and Braxton, you started to answer this, but is it, is it the power is the, is the gospel intrinsically powerful or is the, is the power of the gospel found in the spirit that brings conviction? And in that case, I, I, I just, I'm not sure that I would agree with what said earlier that everywhere that the gospel is preached uh, you know, some type of saving conviction is conveyed. I, I don't know if, if, if you all have thoughts on that. I want to let Braxton answer that, if you will, Braxton. But I do, since we shut the semi-plagian door, I just want to refer people to that blog article where I read from Matt Slick. I go through each of the point of Matt Slick's definition, and I show how we don't believe those points. And so I'll just refer people to Sociology 101 if you want to read why we're not semi-plagian. So we, and we can shut that door. We don't need to go down that road if you don't want to. But go yeah, ahead, um, yeah, I think that whenever you, whenever the gospel is presented, I do think that there is activity of the spirit there. Um, I, I just think that those two things are somewhat intertwined. Now, I don't think that the Bible is a magic book of any kind. I, I think that it, but I do think that it um, has the power of, of the gospel in it. I mean, that's what these passages that we talked about earlier, you know, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And I already read First Thessalonians one five a couple of times. I do think that what what you know, prevenient grace, you know, all that sort of thing. I, I just think there's the conviction of the spirit when the gospel is preached, and I do think then someone can make a choice to reject that message. Um, when it comes to John chapter six, this word seems to really be the sticking point always in this debate, and whether draw can mean something other than. Uh, what the Calvinist thinks it means, which is like a dragnet drawing and, and all that sort of thing. I think that you have to look at how it's used in this passage, look at the context and decide from the context, is that what it, is that what it means here? Um, and I think that Leighton has done a great job of laying out that context already when we come to this passage. And so I think if you just look at the context of John six, it, it doesn't seem like it necessarily means what the Calvinist thinks it means. Um, but, but just the, the contextual question, isn't, isn't there almost a couplet with the next verse that says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted by the father. So in that sense is, is draw and grant both just the proclamation of the gospel? Well, I, the question is, how does God, how does God draw? How does God, um, grant that? How does God bring it about? And I think it's important to remember that in this passage, we're not just talking about unbelievers in general. 
This passage is referring to people that were living during Jesus' earthly ministry. And I personally think that this passage is referring to people who were already God-fearing Jews in Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry, who were God's people, and then they were already believing the message. They had already believed God. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's natural for those people to be drawn to Jesus, to be handed over to Jesus. You know, in um, in John 17, where he's praying for these people, um, he specifically says, you know, they, they were yours and you gave them to me. These weren't the devil's people. These were God's people. Um, it wasn't like he took a subset of the devil's people and gave them over to Jesus. Okay, now now you're going to be now you're going to be saved. They were people that were already worshipers of him. People like his disciples who were you know worshipers who were then drawn to Jesus because Jesus is the earthly manifestation of the Father. So um, I think that context is very important. And the question just is begged: What is the context? What? How does God draw? How does God? Uh, woo these people. I, I don't, you know, you said woo is how Arminians typically handle this text. Um, I, I just think the preaching of the gospel and the convicting of the spirit and whether or not that can be resisted, I think is, of course, the topic of the entire debate and has to be settled elsewhere. I just, I just, that's how I would handle this. But I think Leighton has given a good explanation of this passage already. And so I really kick it over to him. Well, I don't have much to add uh, if that's what you're waiting on. Um, you know, the, the, the focus on that, that one particular word. Um, again, you can, you can take it the way, you know, some Arminians take it, which is that, that drawing is through a prevenient grace that God kind of maybe somehow, um, enables an otherwise disabled will somehow. Um, you could take it, um, in, in that respect of kind of a prevenient work of grace that makes the gospel sufficient. That, to me, it seems like you need to prove that the gospel is insufficient apart from that. But I, I don't think that that's ever proven through the text. Um, I think that the gospel hasn't been sent and fulfilled at that point. And so they're not being drawn because the power of God into salvation has not been completed and commissioned to be sent yet. So um, I, I do see the gospel as a compelling force in the sense that it is it is powerful and it enables the purpose for which it was sent. It doesn't return void, but accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. Now, I understand for the Calvinist, that is to effectually save the elect. But for the non-Calvinist, that purpose is to do exactly what John twenty thirty one says, which is, I have written these things so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. And so the purpose from our perspective is to make an appeal, as Second Corinthians 5, 20 says, that Christ is in us making an appeal be reconciled to God. That's the purpose, to make an appeal to the will of man, to provoke the will of man, to call the will of man, to call someone who has fallen to be reconciled to God. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, common sense to me at least, that that one would say that mankind is born in a capacity or a, an inability to, because of a fallenness, in an inability to respond to the very call of God to be reconciled from that fallenness. And that's what I think is the burden of proof upon the Calvinist to prove that he sent a message that's insufficient apart from some extra working that's never expounded upon in a clear didactic way of the scripture. Can I ask a follow-up question, just a, a hermeneutical question? It seems like the way that you guys are understanding John 6 is that it's very much limited to Israel and that these are not universal promises or universal statements that would apply to um, whoever would believe in him. Um, am I understanding that correctly, that you're basically saying that Jesus's 
issue here is related to maybe judicial hardening or just specifically to that audience, but aren't universal. I guess I need some clarification on that. Um, This is one of the examples of passages, I think, that whether or not this is true, is it true? um, Is this universally true? Well, maybe, but I don't think we can make that determination from this passage, not everything that's mentioned in this passage. Um, You know, it's just like uh, when you come to Certain passages like um, Genesis 6, you know, um, the thoughts of man heart is only evil continually. Uh, well, that was written to a specific kind of person at a particular time, um, you know, when when God was about to destroy the world with water. He's only done that once, you know. Um, uh, so then do you guys think that uh, man's heart is not only evil continually? Well, now I'm not saying that. I believe in the universal sinfulness of man. I'm just not sure you can make that case from that passage. That's what I would say about this. And then I'll let Leighton answer. Yeah, I, I would ref- refer to what Draxon um, commented on earlier with regard to John 17, where there's a real specific praying for his apostles, where he says, you know, I, I gave them the words that you gave me. Um, and that again, goes back to Ephesians chapter one. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. And they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And so he's specifically praying for the apostles as it goes on and even lists the 12 and even gives the exception of Judas there in the process. And all the way down to verse 18, where he says, as you sent me in the world, I have sent them into the world. This is the commissioning portion. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And this gets to your question here, Sean. In verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So again, the purpose of all of this is universally there so that the world may believe. And so the, 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 the purpose of God in calling out and commissioning his apostles who have been given to him by God, who is a... Um, who is, in a sense, being drawn. They've been drawn to him through signs and wonders and through other means. He's he's convincing them of himself, of who he is, so as to commission them to go so that the world may believe. As, as Calvinists are known for saying, God uses means to draw, and the means that we believe he's using is signs and wonders, the gospel, and all these different means that God uses to provoke the will of man. I, I have I have two uh, more clarifying questions, so that um, just just for people listening to kind of understand, because as as we're listening to this, I, I think I'm starting to hear some other um, theological undertones coming through. So, just for my understanding and the understanding of the audience, um, two clarifying uh, questions. I, I, I'm I'm curious, and it might sound like a rabbit trail, but I think it'll help me understand where you're coming from. Um, Leighton and Braxton, are, are, are either of you classical dispensationalists that would say that the, the teaching and ministry of Jesus was, was during the previous dispensation of the law? And so therefore, we're, we're understanding this passage of John um, only kind of maybe allegory isn't the right word, but only as a as a uh, extension of application to the church is I, I think understand that might help me understand your position better. Okay. Um, I don't think so. I think what I'm just seeing here is, I mean, you know, there are some specific things that are happening during Jesus' earthly ministry that are not necessarily true uh, of of those people after. For example, um, you know, 
when Pentecost happened, you know, whenever the day of Pentecost came, this created a little bit of a, a paradigm shift from the way things were of even believers during Jesus' earthly ministry and even after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. Um, namely, the coming of the Holy Spirit in a certain regard hadn't taken place. And so I think there are different, there are things that are different um, about the time, the period in history of Jesus' earthly ministry than there are later. And there are things that are said about those people at that time. They're not necessarily specifically true universally for everyone in all the time. Now, again, I want to reaffirm that I'm not saying uh, that certain things that show up here are not true universally. It's just that you have to make those cases, I think, on other grounds. So, Leighton, I'll turn it back over to you to answer. Yeah, and I would just type in there that I'm, I'm not a dispensationalist. Um, I may have views that are similar to some of the claims of dispensationalists, but that's not something that's been in my field of, of direct study. I mean, I'm familiar somewhat with what they believe just through tests that I've been forced to take in order to answer those questions. But beyond that, um, I don't I don't have a lot of background in dispensational theology. Let me let me ask you guys a question so we can maybe get back to another topic. And that is we've talked a lot about spiritual deadness, spiritual inability. Um, how do you guys define that? Do you, how do you how do you deal with those texts in Ephesians 2 and Colossians that talk about spiritual deadness? And, and what does it mean? How, what does it render a person? Um, how do you guys understand that? I'll go first, if that's OK, Leighton. Um, I understand the the deadness that because here's the problem that I see and, and I'm not I'm not going off on a tangent I'm, I mean this is part of my answer I think that if you uh, bolster one um, statement like that to the exclusion of another um, it can be problematic so we're we're dead but we're also slaves and uh, that sort of thing so I I think what deadness means there the way I take it is that we stand condemned. That we stand, we we are uh, a part of a corporate group that is dead, that is going to experience condemnation, that is um, that is on death row, so to speak. And uh, but that's not to say that I don't think I believe that we are experiencing the ramifications of Adam's sin. I do. I think uh, that we have a nature and environment inclined towards sin, as the Baptist faith and message says. And so I do think that affects us. That's why I'm a soft libertarian. And, and I do. I would really like to know what you guys are in this respect. I would assume compatibilists. I don't know. But this is why I'm a soft libertarian. I do think we're influenced, strongly influenced. Um, even after salvation, we're influenced by our nature, our sinful nature. Uh, and, and I do think we stand condemned before salvation. But that's how I understand deadness, that it is separation from God and it is a state of condemnation. Sorry, sorry to, to cut in front of um, Sean. He gave me he gave me permission. <laughs> um, and I, I think we I think we're still wondering um, then what is the direct analogy of using the term dead? Because by by your statement, it seems like you're saying, well, we're not actually dead. We're dying. So in that sense, what's the utility of the analogy of saying that we're dead if we're not actually, uh, in some sense, dead but well, dying? Here's the way I'd answer that. I, I would say that even the Calvinist doesn't believe in corpse-like deadness to the degree, to the to the literal degree. Otherwise, a a, a dead person wouldn't be able to rebel either against the the, the gospel. And because the, the the corpse can also rebel against the gospel, as a corpse obviously couldn't do anything, it couldn't react in any way. Um, there's obviously the ability of the corpse to react negatively, 
and thus the the analogy falls a little bit short in that regard. And it is just an analogy. But other other apostles use this analogy too. And James, in fact, uses the death analogy when he says, "When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death." And so here, death needs seems to be more, uh, you know, the analogy of becoming hardened or being given over into your, you know, your condition by which you you do become um, unable to see, hear, understand because you've, you're self righteous. You you think you've got it figured out. You think you're you're your own savior. You don't need any help. Um, and so that 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 concept of being dead, in my understanding, is one who is in rebellion and separate, almost like a father might say in the Italian world, you know, to a rebellious son, you're dead to me. It's not a it's not a statement of inability. It's a statement of separation and rebellion. It's the same thing as I might look back to you and say, well, Paul says in the scriptures that that a Christian is to be dead to sin. Well, does that mean that a Christian is unable, unable to sin? When tempted, of course not. It means that you're to be separate from sin, that you're separating yourself. It's kind of like that bridge to life track that we use where we have the separation, the big gap between God and man. That's what deadness is, is that that gulf between us, that we're in rebellion, that we're separate from him. It does not, as far as I can tell in Scripture, anywhere connote the concept of an inability to respond to life-giving truth. I think um, where the Calvinists can um, still have the analogy of deadness is that we're going to say, um, no, my, my, my fallen nature, the nature itself is dead. The, the question for the Calvinists is, is what type of horse is my will riding on? Um, what, you know, what is it tied to? And so for, we're going to say that before Christ, I can rebel because, but my will acts in a dead way because that's the, that's the horse um, that, that's that, or that's really that that's the driver that's, that's driving it. Whereas, um, once, once God, um, by the spirit regenerates my nature to not having a dead nature, but having a, a live nature, um, my, my will is then driven by, by that nature. And so my will, um, can act, um, in, in, a, in a livening way. I can then, um, believe, um, and, and, and repent and, and exercise faith. Um, but that is entirely, an act of God. That's where the that's where the compatibilist is going to come in. I, I'm still acting in a free manner, but I'm acting in accordance with the type of nature that that will is bound to. And so the question that we come, I, I think that that uh, Sean and I keep coming back to, is is you know if if the gospel is spiritual and if and if and if you know Paul is right in saying that you know the spiritual spiritual truths can only be discerned by the spirit that natural man can't accept the things that are of the spirit of god um that it's that it that it's that the natural man can't do that or that it's only by the spirit that we can even um appraise and accept that um that that therefore our nature needs to be enlivened um, and so our will can act. Sean, I don't know if you would want to clarify that any differently or better, probably better. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think that the issue that we're just, maybe the issue is that we're really talking about is how fallen are we in Adam? Um, when Adam sinned and his sin spread, how per- pervasive is that? How corrupting was that? And um, we keep coming back to the fact that we believe we're totally unable you guys believe when the gospel comes, there's enough to 
you know, in the power of the gospel to, to convict. You guys believe it can be resisted. And so I think that, you know, part of the issue is a fundamental understanding of just how pervasive Adam's sin affected us in the fall. And I guess that's where I would want to make sure that we understand, you know, those differences. Well, let's, we've answered a lot of questions. So can we ask a few of our own? I think that would be um, helpful as well. Um, for example, when you talk about the the inborn nature, um, if I'm not mistaken, Calvinists believe that all things come to pass by the decree of God, unchangeable decree of God. And so the very nature of fallen man is a decree of God. In other words, it didn't happen by accident. Um, it, it's a part of the judgment of the fall of Adam that all mankind from that point forward are born in a condition by which they can't even respond to God's own words. And God decreed it that way. How do you reconcile that with just the the common understanding of responsibility, the ability of man to respond to God who has decreed for man to be unable to respond to God? Can make sure I understand what you're saying, Layton. I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying that God, since God has sovereignly decreed all things that come to pass, why would he decree humans to be born in a state where they can't respond to his word. Is that what you're asking? Right. Well, and, not, and more than that, not only can't respond to the word, but then judge them eternally in hell for not responding. Right. Well, and that goes back to the issue of, do we believe in responsibility or do we believe in accountability? And I know, you know, we, I've listened to you enough late and we've talked that you're, you know, you like to say we are responsible, able to respond we would say that we are culpable, we are guilty in sin, and God has every right to to judge us based upon that guilt. Um, and so that's, I think, where the difference would be. Well, the Scripture says in John 12, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you and, and, and to judge you, but the very words that I spoken to you will judge you on the final day. So it seems as if that even throughout Scripture, we see where he doesn't, he looks past the sin of the, of the past, you know, of, of the Old Testament folks. And he, he says, you know, I've, I've been patient, I've been forbearing, I've, I've let those things continue um, in order to, to show mercy and to show grace. But, um, but the very words that I'm speaking to you, in other words, if, if you don't believe these, if you, if you reject these truths, then you're going to be judged by those truths. How, how do you respond to that? Because it's not just being, sounds like to me, it's not just being thrown into hell because you're under Adam. You're, you're being, you're, you're not going to enter the promised land, as Hebrews 3 says, because of unbelief. Right. And I would say, yes, basically, ultimately, what sends a person to hell? We, we as Calvinists would say what sends a person to hell is um, sin, being born in sin. Um, others would say, well, no, what sends a person to hell is they reject the message or they reject Christ when presented. Um, and so I, I think the reason that we are condemned is because of our nature and that nature leads us to reject the gospel unless God comes and sovereignly overcomes that nature with his sovereign grace. I'm going to jump in here for a second. It seems to me that roughly speaking, three sides. You have the Calvinist side, man is born dead in trespasses his sins, which means unable to respond to the gospel unless there is a work of regeneration after which there is an ability to respond, which necessarily follows from the new uh, soul, spirit, whatever. The Arminian side, which says, yes, everyone is born dead. They are unable to respond. However, God gives prevenient grace. Leighton, as you pointed out, prevenient 
coming before. So grace that comes before. This, in a sense, rehabilitates man to a state where he is able to choose to accept or reject. Now, Leighton and Braxton, you have presented a side that is not either one of those. And if I understand your position correctly, and please correct me if I don't, you believe that the gospel, the presentation of the gospel or the preaching of the word is a means of grace. And what that means is that through the preaching of the word, through the offer of the gospel, that person is brought to a point where they can choose. Am I wrong on that? No, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I, just, I would just add the caveat that to remind you that the gospel is brought by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's carried by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's carried by the bride of Christ, filled by the Holy Spirit. The circumstances which bring about the, the gospel, everything that happens is is a part of the Holy Spirit working to make his word known. So it's, it's the word of God is the power of God unto salvation, but it's also the double-edged sword. It cuts through bone, spirit, marrow. So in other words, the, the Bible doesn't point to some extra working of grace as the power. It always points to the word as the power. And so we're, we're, what we're saying is that the word, because it's brought by the spirit and because the spirit's behind the word in the sense that he's the one authoring it, he's the one who's backing up his promises, that's what makes it powerful. Okay, so my question to you then is this. If, that, if, if the proclamation of the word or the presentation of the gospel is the means of grace, what then is the determining factor? If someone cannot accept the gospel, as you pointed out, how can you accept something you've never heard, right? But once you've heard it, and if there is the Spirit working in that, what is the determining factor on whether someone accepts the gospel or rejects the gospel? That would be my question to you. And then my question to the Calvinists is, why, is, why are Leighton and Braxton wrong when they say, when they also agree that we need grace to be uh, rehabilitated, for lack of a better word, instead of regenerated? Why are they wrong when they say that the grace comes through the preaching of the word? So Leighton and Braxton, I would, I would, I would love to hear your answer on why, if, if, it's, if it's working through the word, what, what then determines the acceptance or rejection? Why is it not always effective? Well, obviously, we believe in free will, and so the person's making a choice based upon the the revelation that's been given to them, and they're responsible to it because they're able to respond to the truth of the revelation that's been given. And so if a person rejects the gospel, it's not because God has rejected them first. A person who hates God and continues to hate God till their deathbed doesn't hate God because God first hated them. God provided for them. God has atoned for them. God has made provision for them, and that's their rejection of God is in rebellion even to his grace. And so we put full blame on humanity for rejecting his word. We don't put that back onto the decree of God from birth. We say that they freely chose to reject even the provisions of God's grace. Yeah, and I would say that I think there's, I don't think you intended to, Owen, but I think there's a little bit of a buried premise there, which is that um, that it's in a, that the gospel is ineffective when people reject it. I don't think that it's ineffective. It's kind of like when, when it's often said, well, you know, did Jesus fail to save when he, you know, that because some people on a non-Calvinist view reject, did he fail when he was trying to say, well, what he was trying to do was to present uh, the offer. And he succeeded 100% in presenting the offer and he succeeded 100% in, um, in presenting the gospel. So he succeeded in what he was really attempting to do. Um, I don't even like to say he was attempting to, he did it. That's what God does. He does, he does as he pleases and he pleased to give the gospel, um, for us on our view to make a choice. Now I do think that we make a free choice and that we 
uh, determine whether to believe this or not. Now, I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to speak ahead on what I know is probably <laughs> probably coming. But um, when someone, uh, th- you know, throws the life life raft out there or the uh, 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 the, the life preserver out there, I, I don't ask the question, why didn't that guy over there take the the, the life preserver? That, that it seems to me the only sane thing to do is to take the life preserver. I don't concern myself with too much with why he did it, didn't do it, and I did. Um, I think it's crazy that he didn't do it, just as I think it's crazy when people reject the gospel today. Um, but I don't for one minute uh, say, well, man, look how well I took that life preserver. It's so wonderful. I, I'm so um, uh, I'm so uh, 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 good and, and so righteous and all that sort of thing. So I, I just um, I, I just think that uh, that we do make that determination, but that that was the plan of God. I think that God wants uh, wanted to f- make the free offer through the gospel. Um, so, um, oh, and I think, I think to answer your question and then, um, Sean can, can kind of fill it out. Um, there are a, a couple of, of reasons why we would think it was false. I know for me, um, and we brought this up a couple of times. The, the point is that the gospel is of the spirit and for anyone to even understand, uh, and appraise, let alone accept and believe, um, they have to be enlivened by the spirit. Um, I think that um, their position tiptoes around it by saying, well, the spirit brings conviction, but we can accept or reject that we'll get into um, later when we get into irresistible grace. Um, I, I also think that um, the the point of, of the end of first Corinthians one um, is that it is by the, the power of the spirit that we come to believe. And that's why we don't boast um, so while even though they though they may say, you know, I, I don't boast that I believe, I think the point that Paul is making is that, well, the reason why we don't boast is precisely because uh, it's even an act of the spirit that we don't believe. But really, my main concern, and and, and I think it's OK for for I, I think because we're wrapping up, it's OK to kind of see how these are our preview of our of our future discussions um, I think within their answer, we started to see where we're going to disagree even further down the road where um, the, the gospel isn't th- – it's almost like their view is that the gospel is a gospel about the gospel, um, that the gospel is the good news, that there is an offer of the gospel, where I think Sean and I would say, well, no, the gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished atonement, that Christ – has died, um, and that that atonement has been achieved, that God has been made propitiated for his elect, um, that, that, that those have been accomplished. And, and the good news isn't, isn't the offer. The good news is what has happened objectively in history, um, and that by the power of the Spirit, we are enlivened um, to, to um, rejoice uh, and, and exercise faith um, on on that, and I and I think that we'll see that that's going to be a point of contention um, later. Even though, um, and I see Braxton wants to jump in. I'll give you here in a second. Even though I think he's going to say, um, "Look, we agree that Christ uh, accomplished." I think when we actually get to the atonement, um, I'm going to I'm going to press if that really is the logical consequence. If that really is um, consistent with their view. Uh, yeah, Tyler, I, and I know we are wrapping up. Um, so let me just give a hairball out here and then you, <laughs> you can deal with it. Um, I, I, 
hairball yeah. gross. Well, I have a cat. I'm I'm one of those unfortunate people who has a cat and I'm a dog person. But um I um you know, I I you're a compatibilist and we got a little bit into the discussion before our our benevolent moderator moved us on of how it is, how it makes sense, how it is just, how it is moral, whatever, however you, whatever adjective you want to, um, for God to decree that people, uh, become or be sinful people, decree that people function a certain way and then to command them to repent and believe and then, uh, hold them responsible for acting as he determined that they would act. Uh, here, now, I, maybe I'm unfair. I know there's always caveats. To maybe I'm unfairly characterizing you. I really do think, though, that beyond the caveats, this is what it boils down to. I mean, they're totally unable. And this is all according to the plan and decree of God. So when you're an apologist, and I think in, in a certain respect, you and I are two sides of the same coin. We're both apologists who argue similarly, I think, on other things. But we like to uh, talk about soteriology, too. We just have differences there. And I see you oftentimes... Um, I think you and I argue the same way when we're talking to the atheist and we follow the same well-trodden paths in our brains when it comes to these philosophical arguments and the way things are. But somehow when we come to this, um, I, it's like you depart from me. And and I think you it, it almost feels like you go off in another direction. Whereas, you know, like I said earlier, I think that if if I functioned as a human being, and of course that is a distinct difference, but I think that when I when I function as a human being toward my own children, I, I would be considered an abusive father to do what I think you understand um, the, uh, the the nature of God and man to be with those that that are not saved and don't become regenerate. Um, I think I had something else I was going to say. Oh, and the other thing was you said that the gospel was good news, but and I'm not saying this kind of in a bumper sticker non-Calvinist way, but good news with respect to who. So I'll just kind of leave that hairball hanging in the air there and you can respond. Yeah, I, I mean, I think at this point, which, by the way, I have to say, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and, and the discussion so far. I think at this point, because we are wrapping up and we're, we're starting to, to see the, those seeds that we planted in this episode start blossoming and how it's going to affect um, our discussions of election, for example, and, and the fairness, because I'm already feeling that my my answers are going to be, um, well, when we start getting into the fairness, um, we're going to start getting into issues of, of Romans 9, which really is going to come up later. Um, but part of my answer is going to come about, and I'm going to say, look, um, one of the most common Old Testament verses cited in the New Testament is the passage in Isaiah where where Isaiah is told the the entire point of his preaching is to make uh, the people dull, is to make them deaf, is to make them blind, and the purpose is to make it so they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand with their hearts, because otherwise they would turn and be healed. Um, so so um, while that's an uncomfortable passage. Um, I'm not sure um, what? that that's an and, easy passage for the well, and for might the, have implications for total answer. depravity too. Yeah, because that's that's the question I would have, Tyler. Is why if God if if all people are born totally disabled, then why would He need to do all those things? It sounds like to me that's a part of judicial hardening, which is the the really the crux and the root of our you know our whole view against total inability is the concept of God judicially hardening of people to keep them from faith for a time in order to accomplish a redemptive purpose through them. 
And so it seems as if there's no purpose in speaking in parables so as to prevent people to believe if indeed they're born totally incapable of understanding and believing anyway. Yeah, and we and I think the Calvinists and Sean can probably answer as we're going to say, well, we that that verse is talking about a confirmation. Uh, it's going to confirm them in their in their original state um, that that if if the if um, Isaiah was proclaiming the message um, empowered by the Holy Spirit in the, in the way that um, the gospel does for the elect, um, it's that it's that that other side of the coin. Um, where the proclamation of the gospel is is empowered by the spirit for the elect to bring them to faith and repentance, uh, because it's not empowered that way, it's going to confirm them in their original state. Well, the text actually says he speaks to them in, them in parables; otherwise, they might turn and be healed. And so, I'm not sure how that would fit if if the parable itself is preventing them turning to be healed. How that fits within that that translation? Yeah, I mean, we, we again are running out of time. There, there, there are aspects I'm bringing it up for the point where where Braxton is asking about the fairness um, uh, of things like that, and and saying, look, we we have a we have a very positive case, one that's reiterated, one of the most often Old Testament passages cited in the New Testament, where where it's saying, look, if you're going to make that it's unfair argument against the Calvinist. What do you do with these passages where if, if God's heart is for, you know, all, all to repent and believe, and that's the purpose of the gospel, and it's, it's just human freedom, why in the world would he have them preach uh, in, in parables with the purpose of darkening them and hardening them and making it so they, they can't turn and believe? I, I think that that works. And again, and again, I'm saying this in kind of projection of the episode coming, but I think I that's going to be a major I, I problem. Think, uh, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right, Tyler, um, that we're running out of time. And so for that reason, I'll just say this and then whatever, you, however you handle it or whatever Leighton says, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, you can respond. But I I think really uh, you did handle the hairball that I threw out there um, by saying, you know, we'll, we'll tackle it next time. And then you gave a, a little bit of an answer that I think was a you did a good job and eloquently gave. But you stumbled across that other hairball. <laughs> <laughs> that now that now deals with uh, what Leighton and I are pressing on, which is, wait a minute, what do you mean they would have believed? Uh, if God doesn't want them to believe, he should he just shouldn't quicken their spirit. He should he should leave them completely, totally depraved. I mean, if compatibilism is true, God doesn't have to worry about um, uh, being careful not to accidentally regenerate them or whatever. Uh, that's not fair. That sounds that sounds like I'm uh, denigrating your position. I don't mean that, but I am trying to give an impression of what I think is the perspective of the Calvinist here. Why, why does God concern himself with uh, making sure not to uh, provoke belief? I mean, if total depravity is true, that, that just seems to be out of the question. Yeah, and I would just add that the, the very the very objection that, Tyler, you're bringing up is the very objection we yeah. believe Paul's anticipating in Romans chapter 3, the verse, first few verses, and in Romans chapter 9, the, the, big, the big controversial chapter of the the interlocutor interlocutor there that's objecting he's objecting to the very thing you're talking about is God hardening blinding Israelites um how why would he do that well Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 as I, I read my opener that had they believed had the leaders of his day believed these things that had been hidden for generations they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory so in order for Christ to accomplish his purpose he was hiding the truth in parables he was hiding his identity, telling over seven different times throughout the Gospels not to tell people who he was. 
and he was strategically revealing himself to only those he wanted to reveal himself and hiding the truth from the rest so as to accomplish redemption. God's purpose was being fulfilled through Israel, through both their good and the bad actions of Israel, their hardening and their mercying of Israel. And so that's why I think it's really important to understand that there is a purpose from our perspective for God hiding things from people for a time. The problem with the Calvinist is that they have kind of God putting a blindfold on top of people who were born totally and completely without eyes. And it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Let me just say a real brief word in closing that all the five points of Calvinism fly together. Um, and so a lot of these topics are going to overlap in future podcasts where we'll have more time to unfold and to expound these in, in more detail. The Calvinism Debate has been brought to you by the Christus Victor Network of Podcasts. Please go to ChristusVictorNetwork.com slash The Calvinism Debate to find this debate as well as the other four in the series as they appear.